Hey, Larry, how you doing, man? Great, uh, Glenn. Great to be back with you. It is good to have you back. This is Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show, formerly at bloggingheads.tv, now at glennlowry.substack.com and at my YouTube channel, YouTube forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. Wherever you find your podcast, you can get the Glenn Show. You can subscribe. And if you subscribe, you get to hear what we do on Monday instead of Friday of each week, and you get to hear it without ads. So I encourage you to go to my Substack and to subscribe. I'm with Lawrence Kotlikoff, professor of economics at Boston University, prolific author, who has just published his 20th book that we will talk about. A dear friend of mine, best man at my wedding four years ago, as it happens, uh, and frequent guests on The Glenn Show. So welcome back, Larry. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Uh, I couldn't help but have you. My friend puts out a book, everybody. It's called Money Magic, An Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life. Larry is in the business of advising you, as he has been doing, actually, for some time, 20th book. Previous books include Getting What's Yours with Paul Salmon, uh, in which he dissects the labyrinthine uh, uh, regulations and, and specifications of the social security system to make sure you know how to deal with that. And, uh, you know, Larry and I talk economics here often, so I'm glad to be able to help you promote the book, Larry. Thanks so much. Yeah, that, that book, uh, Get What's Yours. Also, Phil Muller, a, a very well-known uh, financial columnist, was a co-author. And oh, I beg you know, your pardon. I didn't know it was three of you. Yeah, three of us. And, and uh, you know, we tried to make it funny. So it turned into a national bestseller. Can you imagine a book about 2,728 rules becomes a number one nat- bestseller for 11 days and then for the whole year was in the top 10? Uh, well, yeah, I can imagine it because what is it, about a trillion dollars or so going out the door in Social Security and uh, Medicare expenses every year? And uh, there's a lot of people like me. I don't know about you, but I'm actually over 70 years old. There are a lot of us. And sure. we got time on our hands, Larry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> we're numerous. <laughs> we are <laughs> relatively idle and we have a huge financial stake. <laughs> right. Every fall, I got you some free benefits, right? Some benefits you didn't know about. Larry Remember? saved me, I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars because I didn't realize after my late wife, Linda Lowry, the great uh, Linda Lowry economist from Tufts University, my wife of 28 years, and dear friend for more than 30 years, mother of my children, Glenn and Nehemiah, Linda Lowry, passed away. And I did not know that I could claim Social Security death benefits for her until I actually got old enough to start claiming them on my own account. Yeah, you you took widow's benefits uh, on her record once you reached full retirement age, and then you took your own benefit at a a much higher number uh, at 70. That's correct. And that was that was tens of thousands of dollars, and thank you very much, Larry. Uh, it's been put to good use, I assure you. <laughs> I think you owe me, think you owe me at least lunch or breakfast, maybe. Okay, right. my friend, I got to ask you. This is an interesting book. It's funny. It's written in a, with a light touch. Uh, it is engaging. It's it's you know it's the kind of thing that you expect from Larry Kotlikoff, author of what did you call it? Jimmy Stewart is dead. Is that the title you gave to that book about banking? In other words, the, you remember It's a Wonderful Life. You remember that movie, everybody, where Jimmy Stewart plays the friendly community banker? Well, forget about it. <laughs> forget <laughs> about it. That, that guy's gone. The, the community bank is not all that friendly. Larry made all of that financial uh, crisis shenanigans stuff. Uh, 
uh, come to life in in a very in a very beautiful way. So more power to you, Larry. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think anybody knew what that who Jimmy Stewart was or what that title was all about, but it was definitely the wonderful life and the idea that you got it exactly that we can't rely on uh, on Jimmy Stewart's to be running our banking system. We got to be relying on Anthony Mozillo's who uh, aren't necessarily trustworthy. <laughs> As it certainly proved to be the case. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Larry, um, I have to ask this question because sure. uh, you know we uh, academic economists are pretty prideful and pretty arrogant and pretty. Some of us are even assholes, and we'll say he's wasting his time. It's pulp fiction. He's he's writing financial advice books for households about what to do with their mortgage. Whatever happened to economic science? Whatever happened to the serious exploration of the unsolved questions of the frontier of the discipline? Blah, 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 blah. Sure, it might sell well, but, you know, Freakonomics sold well, too. And that didn't really advance the frontier of the discipline either. Larry, how would you defend yourself against the sneering, dismissive criticism of some of your peers, which I'm sure I'm sure you've heard before? Well, I, I've done my homework. Uh, you know, I I. Personal finance is a, a big part of actually economic science going back to the work of Irving Fisher in the 1920s. So we have a hundred year history of working on this topic as economists. There's been 11 Nobel prizes awarded for the economics of finance. And uh, and I would say about seven of those uh, 11 have been about personal finance in to a large extent. So the lessons of economics has not been conveyed to the public. So we have an obligation, I think, as economists to do good to do good, uh, to help people, help uh, government figure out policies and to help individuals figure out their own financial lives. And we haven't been, I think, uh, you know, delivering on that obligation. So when I went into economics as a grad student, I, you know, I started out at the beginning of the book, I talk about uh, in the preface about deciding whether or not to become a doctor or an economist. And I ran into a frog that I had to dissect and he changed my mind. <laughs> and, I, and uh, but I, economics intrigued me because I thought we could do some, you know, something, you know, it was a field you could do some, some good. And then I realized that there was basically nobody telling the public all these secrets that economists have been developing for a century, theoretical secrets about finance, how to handle your finances. And then, uh, and then I also developed the software uh, starting 29 years ago, a company that has this t tool called Maxify Planner. Uh, to actually help people figure out how to raise, you know, smooth their living standard, figure out what can they afford on an ongoing basis, their living standard, how to raise it, how to figure out what things, uh, decisions like getting married or divorced or buying this big house is going to impact them in terms of their living standard or getting retiring early. What's the, the price in terms of the living standard? And also, if you invest in risk, how much does your living standard move around through time? How much does it fan out? If you invested risk, you know, what's the upside, what's the downside? So all this stuff wasn't being conveyed. Wall Street had its me methodology, but it's very much at odds with what economics recommends uh, people do. So I thought I had an obligation to develop the software because I was developing it for my research, this kind of stuff. And then I said, well, let, let me make a software tool for the public. And we've been at it for 29 years. And uh, But then I realized that not everybody has an inclination to run software. So I should take what I learned from the software, what I've learned from people like Bob Merton and uh, Zvi Bodhi and other top finance guys, uh, and what 100 years of research has, has, has told us and put it all together in the book and let people just 
learn from the book what economics recommends. Okay, so that was a response to my question about how you square uh, delving into yeah. personal finance with your uh, high-minded, our high-minded, high-minded ambitions for being research economists. Yeah. And I'm translating you into there's a whole lot of knowledge in finance that's not available to the common man, but that's relevant to the management of the common man, woman's affairs. And you're going to translate this uh, insight from finance, uh, the finance literature into practical advice for households. Uh, do I get that right? Yeah. I mean, I'm just the, the basic idea, you know, the basic idea that you have some lifetime resources, human wealth, uh, net wealth, uh, you have some negative resources, taxes, you have some off the tops uh, required spending on maybe alimony or college tuition, uh, paying off your mortgage, obviously. Uh, so what's left is what you get to spend. And then the key thing is spending it in a way that you don't run out. That's what we're trying to do. Just like a squirrel is accumulating acorns for the winter, we want to have a smooth living center per person through to, their, to our maximum age of life. And Wall Street and the financial tools that they have out there are predicated on making you happy. The first question is, how much would you like to spend in retirement? That's the first question they ask. Not how much you have, not how much can you afford, but how much would you like to spend? My answer to that question is a billion dollars a day. Uh, but anyway, people give uh, answers. They set a target that's generally too high. And then the next thing that happens is that the financial advisor that's connected to these Wall Street firms says, well, let me figure out a method for you to invest such that you can make this target that has no connection to reality. Yeah. And then we're off running, uh, setting people into risky securities where we can charge high fees. Well, That's excuse me, excuse me for interrupting, Larry. I, I have no doubt that the, uh, the, you know, Carnival Act that I might find when I walk into a commercial financial advisory service where they're they're basically it's a it's a song and dance it's a whatever i mean i i i will confess uh i don't do a lot of personal management of my own little right. savings i've turned it over to fidelity i know you object i know andy weiss our friend objects uh i know that i should as an economist be more responsible for managing my funds but you know, man, I, I just, you know, I, I don't feel like dealing with it. So I turn it over to Fidelity and, and we go occasionally to these meetings with the investment advisory guy. And, you know, as an economist, I sit there and I listen to the various little algorithms that he runs me through and he wants to show me charts on the screen and he wants to tell me a story. And I realize it's a snow job. I mean, I, mean, I, I realize I'm not getting a whole lot of value for it. Uh, but uh, my recollection of of serious... Uh, finance theory and science, you know, of the kind of thing that got a guy like Robert Merton or a guy like Franco Modigliani uh, Nobel Prizes was that th th it was it was uh, much more subtle kind of equilibrium for now. What is the Modigliani-Miller theorem? Is this something like the value of the company doesn't depend on how much of the financing of the company is equity and how much of it is debt in an e equilibrium thing? Or Merton's uh, stuff about uh, pricing options and these very clever dynamic programming arguments that they, that he would develop, or even Schiller, it's much more of a, as I understand him, focused on measurement. But there, there was there was a, a, 
a systemic element to it where I'm in, interested in individuals interacting with each other in markets and how the uh, arbitrage principles and, and how the, the information uh, insights and whatnot affect the outcome of the interactions in markets. Whereas you're talking about, as I understand you, correct me if I'm wrong, merely, forgive me, merely solving a dynamic programming problem for an individual household. I'm not saying the computational exercise is not challenging. I'm saying the conceptual problems there are, are, are trivial is the word that these snooty theorists would use when they would sneer down at, uh, uh, at what you're doing. But I mean, I, is there any deep conceptual issue here? Or is it all pretty much common sense? No, no, it's, there's deep there's deep work in, in finance that uh, uh, that Merton. I mean, think about Merton and Samuelson's separate independent papers in in '69. You may uh, not be familiar with those, where they show I'm not, that I'm not. If you take um, standard uh, what we call you know isoelastic utility functions, standard you know preferences, that people should hold the same. And if everything were fungible, all their resources were fungible, they would want to have the same. Uh, risk profile in terms of their total uh, uh, risk allocation of their total resources through time. So they, if you think about being able to swap all your future human wealth, all your future earnings uh, uh, into ready cash, all your future social security benefits into ready cash, so you had everything in, in just wealth right on, in, in your hands, how would you allocate that uh, right now if you're 30? Well, maybe it's 30% stocks and 70% bonds. Just assume assume they're just two assets to keep it simple. Well, so what they both showed in separate papers in top journals, I think, you know, the the very you know top five journals, was that you'd want to keep that ratio fixed through time, as you age. You always want to have 30, 70, and then when you take that principle and you say, okay, through, we don't actually have fungibility, so we can't. But what, so we have to think about trying to get as close as possible. To that ideal, and this is what you know, Merton and and Zbibody and and uh, Bill Samus and Paul's son wrote in a very famous paper. As you go through life, you want to try and arrange things so that you're always like 30, 70 stocks to bonds. But you got to realize that your labor income may be more like a bond than a stock. If so, you already have a have a lot of bonds, and as you get into retirement, now you've got Social Security, which is a bond, and so. Uh, so, so one of the propositions is that if you're super rich, you want to hold bonds, not stocks, because uh, you don't have a lot of Social Security. You know, you know, if you're, let's say you're retired as you're a seven, proportion of your overall uh, income. So I try to convey these lessons from that, just from that study. Now, here's another theoretical insight, which is just that stocks are a random walk, and that we that stocks are not safe in the long run because they are a random walk. Now the Financial markets are telling, or the financial industry is telling people that stocks are safe for the long in the long run, but everything in finance says they're not. And everything we see from the option from option theory and option pricing, if you want to try and buy insurance against stocks uh, beating investing in tips and infl inflation index bonds, uh, uh, out any date, the further out you go, the more expensive it is. From that's from option pricing, and and so. There is a deep connection between real theory and what we can tell people that, that stocks are not safer, that they are they are risky, that uh, we need to understand right now today that this, that on a risk adjusted basis the stock market is on a risk adjusted basis is paying you negative 11 basis points, 
That's what in 30-year tips, if you know, if you invest 30 year, in 30-year tips right now today, it's a negative law of invasive what's, points. What's a tips? I'm sorry. Inflate, uh, treasury inflation protected securities. So that, you know, the, if we're thinking about, should I, for example, keep my money in uh, stocks versus taking the money out and paying off my four percentage point mortgage, that's what mortgages are right now yielding, uh, pay, you know, charging 4%. That's the current mortgage rate. If I can earn on, an, on a risk-adjusted basis negative 11 basis points, whereas if I pay for the mortgage, I can earn four percentage points. There's a explain huge to, Explain to everybody, including me, how it is that uh, my uh, investment in stocks is earning, uh, what is this risk adjustment, is earning a negative return in, if you adjust for risk. Explain that, because it doesn't feel like a negative return to me. <laughs> well, on average, stocks are doing, you know, have, are, do quite well over... Uh, uh, you know they do well on average, but they have got a huge standard deviation. I mean, the stuff the market's dropped ten uh, percent, I think, just in the last month or so. Uh, so yeah, but it's up over thirty thousand, right? I mean, it was like at sixteen thousand in twenty sixteen when Trump uh, won that election. I mean, that's right. that looks like a doubling in uh, five years. What what am I missing? Well, there have been periods where it's gone up. There's a, it also fell 86 percent from 29 to 33. It fell 50 percent from 2000 2002. In 50, in 2008, it fell 53 percent between 2008 and middle of 2009. So, yes, it goes up. Yes, it goes down. When you're selling, you know, right now today, you've got people that are investing in stock and they're also investing in tips and the uh, differential. The tips are safe. So, on a risk-adjusted basis. Uh, to go from something that's risky and has a high average return to something safe, you ha you end up with 11 basis points as a safe return. That's the risk. Just like, you know, what is the, the price of an orange measured in terms of apples? It's just we'd look at the two prices. Here are the two prices are right there on the marketplace, right in front of us. But people don't get that. That's, you know, this is why it's in Treasury inflation protected securities. How are they safe? I'm 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 really in the dark. I'm sorry. Treasury inflate. Yeah, since uh, the you know Larry Summers, our colleague in economics, when he was yeah. Treasury Secretary for like four months or six months, uh, uh, he was you know at the end of Clinton. At the end of the Clinton administration, after uh, his mentor, the Citibank guy, stepped Bob, aside. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we'll think of it. We'll think of it, Bob, somebody <laughs> who has a lot more money than you or I will ever have. <laughs> I hope we forget his name. He'll come back to us. Anyway, he yeah. got on the job and he's uh, Larry was the Treasury Secretary and also yeah. the Under Treasury Secretary before that. And he put this into place, uh, fortunately. And so now you can invest in an inflation protected manner. But because things are so risky out there with respect to the stock market, uh, people are willing to to get a negative return for sure over the next 30 years. If you invest for the next five years in tips, it's a bit like a negative one percentage point return uh, or negative two percent. So things are the stock market is really risky. Otherwise, nobody would be buying these safe securities and getting for sure something negative. Uh, so uh, yeah, so <laughs> so this is why I'm trying to get people to understand. To make these comparisons uh, uh, between, I, I'm saying, look, if you've got a, uh, an IRA that's taxable and you're maybe 63 and you've got the money in the stock market, 
you're earning on an inflation-adjusted basis, on a safe basis, negative 11 basis points. If you can take that money out of your IRA, pay taxes on it, and pay off your student loan that's charging you 5%, 7%, there's still a lot of people in their 60s paying off their student loans, or your credit card at 18%, this is a a no-brainer. You want to move the money out of the stock market, out of your IRA, pay off the taxes, potentially, you know, it depends on what tax bracket you're in. This is not true for everybody. But I give an example order, a typical middle-class household can earn $100,000 by making that move. And that's by running the software. I don't, it's not a book about the software. It's a book about examples. And, and, but it's also not just about high finance. It's about, you know, there's chapters that are called Don't Borrow for College. I talk about the big scam involved in borrowing for college. I talk oh, hold about on a minute. Yeah, I, before yeah. you go on, I, I just want to make sure uh, we understand the nature of this recommendation to uh, to cash in some of your retirement savings and use it to um, get out of debt if you have student loans. I assume it applies to credit card debt, which is much more expensive. And uh, right. certainly, uh, what about the the mortgage debt that you might be uh, holding because you have your hundred thousand dollars on your house or whatever. Um, and it sounds to me like almost no matter what the interest rate is on the debt, unless it were negative, you should retire that debt if you have uh, significant assets. Uh, you're saying that depends on the tax bracket because when you redeem the IRA, you have to pay the deferred taxes on it. And if you're in a high bracket, the calculation will be a little bit different. Um, and uh, it doesn't uh, have any impact on the risk uh, it, or, or does it on the risk uh, benefit calculation on the relative balancing of the uh, individual's portfolio? Should they sell both stocks or bonds or both when they uh, uh, make this trans uh, this transaction? Well, you want to, you know, if you're um, you have to realize that if you're if you've got a debt and you've got the ability to pay it off and and you aren't doing that and you leave the money in the stock market, what you really have to have to understand is that you have borrowed to invest in the stock market. Because if you did pay it off, then when you would you ask yourself you ask yourself the question, would I actively go out, borrow money on my house to put it in the stock market? Most Americans wouldn't do that. So I'm trying to give kind of economic logic. Every place, you know, comes, whether you know we're talking about divorce, there's a chapter about, you know, a divorce like an economist. <laughs> there's a a chapter uh, called my daughter <laughs> my daughter the plumber which is trying to look at careers and the fact that doctors make um, a lot of doctors make less than plumbers over the lifetime and okay with, you, you get you got everything but the kitchen sink in there and i'm i still want to focus on uh okay sure. selling selling shares and uh my uh ira uh and using the money to uh yeah. retire I mean, the your debt just no, it's just a real what? insight it's a real insight to observe to somebody Holding debt and holding these assets for your retirement at the same time is the equivalent of borrowing money in order to invest in the stock market because you could always retire the debt with the money that you have in the stock market. So in effect, you're holding debt so that you can have more money in the stock market. That is, you're borrowing to invest in the stock market. I, it's it's a very easy tautology, but it it does actually change change the way that a person might feel about uh, how to handle their money. So I think that that's and that's the fidelity an broker, answer. the fidelity guy who wants to have you stay in the stock market so he can charge fees, is not going to tell you this. Okay, this yeah. is the advantage of having an economist who's not got some product to sell you. 
giving yeah. you know, giving this information across. We do yeah. have a amount of insight that we just haven't shared. We've been like monks, we economists, in our little cloisters. We have all this knowledge about finance and about personal finance, and we haven't been sharing it. Well, let me and ask that- you about something else that actually relates to my own personal finance, which is I've got a friend who's an insurance salesman. Mm-hmm. He's an insurance agent. He he wants me to buy life insurance. Uh, he wants me, and, and then the, you know, he, I haven't bought anything yet. And he shows me all these complicated plans about the life insurance and whole life insurance, and you can redeem it and you get 80% and 20, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, I should not use life insurance as an investment vehicle. I'm, this is what I'm thinking to myself. I shouldn't use it as a way of, of you know, uh, what, what should be the protocol that determines whether or not a guy like me who gets a term insurance coverage that comes as a benefit with my uh, job? I have to pay for it, but it's you know pretty yeah. standardized and pretty cheap. Uh, I can always self-insure by holding money uh, in you know the bank that uh, for my wife if I should expire, my children or whatever. Uh, what what are you what are you saying? I know you must be saying something. I confess I haven't read every chapter of the book, Larry. I'm sorry. But, life insurance, you know, we yeah. buy car insurance to insure our car. We total our car. We buy health insurance against our health. We buy life insurance to insure our labor income. When we're older and we have less labor income, we don't need life insurance. And the other overriding rule here is anything that's complicated, uh, you do not want to get near, uh, financially speaking. Anything that's not plain as high, you know, simple, simple and straightforward that you understand, you're being swindled. And even if it's your best friend, because your life insurance agent might be a lovely guy, he does not understand the product he's selling, I'm sure because it's that complicated. You know, I've seen these products, they've talked to me about it. It would take me a month to figure it out. I have to write my own dynamic programming tool to figure out what exactly, how how much I would be screwed if I bought this thing. They have very subtle ways of screwing you. So if it's very simple term life insurance, then it's straightforward. If it's a simple annuity product, it's a single life of pol- policy or joint survivor policy, it's one thing. But if it's a very complicated tool, policy, Stay away. I mean, I talk about, you know, the government's involved in, in selling uh, scam, uh, scammy products like reverse mortgages. The government's heavily involved in reverse mortgages to, uh, to I think, scam the elderly into buying these things through the banking system uh, to try and get uh, to untrap their equity because their baby boomers are coming into retirement with far too little money, with money for only like three years of uh, spending to, in terms of their assets. and then. They've got a house, and then the government is trying to help them out of their house in the form of, you know, uh, let's figure out a way where you can borrow against your house value, take out a good chunk of the equity, yeah. and hey, guess what? If you never die, if you never leave the house, uh, if you stay in the house, we're never going to ask for a penny back. We're going to give you some money. You'll get to spend it. But what they don't tell you, and this is a government-run program. Uh, called a Heckam loan, what they don't tell you is if you have to move in, in in five years, you're gonna have to pay back what they gave you at a huge interest rate. Plus, there's like 15 different fees that they're gonna tr- charge interest on those that you have to repay. And then they're gonna say, well, don't worry, we'll let you take out another one of these loans. But if you have to move, move several times, you'll end up on the street. Uh, basically, it's a just Wait, terrible. You, you- yeah. You're saying that the these reverse uh, mortgage uh, uh, products that are being offered, I see them on television every night, practically. 
yeah. are 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 a scam, and and uh, you're, you're breaking that down. I think they're a scam. I go through them in some some detail in the book, and uh, there are many other ways to deal with uh, trapped equity than than I mean, you basically, you lose fifty cents on the dollar. What I'm trying to get across in general in this book. Well, hold on, hold on a minute. Just let me be clear on this, Larry. It all depends on the terms at which the transaction would be carried out. I mean, the, yeah. there's an there's an implicit uh, swindle in there because they're they're cashing you out. You have equity in the house. They're going to provide it to you now, but they're doing it on terms that are inferior to uh, uh, what you might be able to get if you didn't do that. So that's the reason not to use it, right? Yeah, that's the reason. Yeah, and so the main you know one of the main themes of this book is there's so many ways to make to improve your uh, your living standard to to get more money safely without any risk whatsoever before you even start thinking about stocks versus bonds look i probably you know just in a conversation made you $75,000 uh with that uh, you know winner's benefit information if we talked about you know uh, uh paying off a mortgage at a at a high rate where you're on a safe basis that could in the case of in the example in the book it was uh, like $75,000 uh, for the particular person um that I uh, took a, you know, made it as an example. There, there's a downsizing your home. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code GLENN, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code GLENN. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors. From Christopher Buckley to PJ O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, the Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of the Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at SpectatorWorld.com/forward/slash/special/offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. There's a moving to Texas where there's no state income tax from California where the top rate's 13%. There's all these things you can do uh, annuitizing your your uh, with retirement withdrawals with a reliable insurance company and then maybe taking out a bigger mortgage to deal with the inflation risk because uh, I'm not, you know, anti, 
Um, mortgages should be paid off in a low inv inflation environment, but in a high inflation environment, they are a great hedge against inflation. So I want to make clear that uh, that uh, you know if you if you took out money on a mortgage and used it to buy an annuity, you'd have in effect an inflation index annuity because if inflation takes off, you lose money on the annuity, but you gain money on the mortgage because you pay back the mortgage and water down dollars. So you know lots of things. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm talking about a whole range of ways to safely raise your your uh, it's you know the title is an economist secrets the subtitle an economist secrets to more money less risk and a better life and uh, better life is really making lifestyle decisions that you price out based on how much it's going to impact your living standards so if I get if I'm thinking about divorcing Sam here who I hate to the tune of 20% of my living standard meaning that if I could leave Sam and it wouldn't cost me more than 20% of my living standard, if it only cost me 10%, I'm out the door. But if it's going to cost me 20, 30%, I'm going to stick it out with Sam. He's not worth giving up 30% of my living standard for the rest of my life. That's the way we have to think. Very hard nose and cold, cold. <laughs> you know, we economists are just, you know, are hard nosed people. No, no, I get it. I'm <laughs> contemplating divorce. The question is, what's it going to cost me? And then the question is, what am I willing to pay to be divorced? And if it costs me more than I'm willing to pay, I should stick it out. And you're asking a person to think like an economist and to do that calculation rather than to just act on emotion and then realize after the fact that they paid way more than they were willing to pay to be out of a relationship. And I don't have a problem with that. I suppose there are people who would that you've, you've crassly reduced to numbers, something that should be a matter of, you know morals or something like that. Divorce is not something that we should just uh, trade over the counter. There's something sacred or something like that. But I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm your economist colleague. Uh, yeah. So you're, saying, you're advising me against purchasing term, I mean, whole life insurance under any circumstances. Unless you run it by me first, the policy. But I, I'm sure it's going to be far too yeah, I'm sure it, it's worth it. The, uh, it's got all these gimmicks in there about how it'll be worth this much when you die, or if you want it, if you decide that you want to cash it in, you can get this percentage. Then they've got different columns where, you know, there are different uh, packages of you get 80% or 60% or 30%. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out, you know, what the implicit cost of the insurance was. I mean, think about, you know, they have student loans. I mean, talk about government scams. They have, the federal government is making basically all the loans to students at a high interest rate. You can't refinance at a lower rate. You can't get out from under these loans by going bankrupt. You can't discharge them in bankruptcy. They will come after you. If you're 99, you haven't paid your student loans, and there are people 99 haven't paid them off, they will take it out of your social security check every month. Uh, this is Uncle Sam at his nastiest. And uh, then they have these repayment schemes. Some are income related. They're so complicated, you again would need a supercomputer to figure out what's yeah, so I talk about what to avoid when it comes, you know, first of all, I have a chapter called Don't Borrow for College. I talk about the about the ways in which you can get a, a terrific college degree on the cheap from a place like Stanford just using online courses. Uh, you know, think about if you want to uh, get a job with IBM and you and you don't want to and you cannot afford uh, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, whatever, uh, Oberlin College, where my sons went, where it's very expensive. Well, take 20 online courses from those places that on the cheap 
get a certificate, get a, a grade for the online course, and then go to uh, you know your state, your community college for six thousand a year, say ten thousand. Get a job at McDonald's to pay that. Don't borrow. And then when it comes to graduating and, and applying for the quantum computing job at IBM, send them the 20 certificates of these courses and see how well you do against the Williams College graduate who is uh, majored in English and is applying for the same job. They are going to hire you, not that college graduate who's walking out the door with a major in English, wanted to do English, borrowed $300,000, he and his parents, yeah. and cannot afford to do English, be an English professor or an English whatever English teacher in high school because he's got $300,000 in, in debt. People are borrowing sense. so I, I don't know whether the employer is going to read the uh, uh, stapled together certificates in the same way that he'd read a Stanford degree. That That's an empirical question, right? Uh, well, whether whether employers will value the, I mean, objectively they should do so, but the Stanford reputation and all of that. But uh, it's a certificate from Stanford. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's an online course being given at Stanford. I would think they would, and it's a grade and it's 700 bucks for the course. Yeah, and it's out there. Okay, this is a way. You know, this you want to go to college on the well, to a top. I, I mean, somehow I'm I'm doubting that that arbitrage opportunity is quite as simple because Stanford has chosen through its massive online uh, course uh, program to make these courses available. If indeed they thought that you could arbitrage them in the way that you subscribe so, that you describe by taking those courses online and then presenting certificates, they'd be undercutting their own market, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, I think what Stanford's doing is selling, is partly arranging marriages. People from a certain, you know, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> you know, you, the rich kid, rich parents sending their kids to Stanford so they can meet other kids from other rich parents <laughs> and, uh, and preserve their, their wealth and whatever. Uh, that's part of what's going on here. Uh, well, let me, let me, I mean, you put it in, in humorous terms. There are many social connections to be acquired by attending selective and elite schools. Some of them have to do with romance and uh, marital uh, relations. Some of them have to do with business partnerships or fraternities that you might join, which benefits right. you then down the stream. And part of what you gain when you show up at one of these exclusive $60,000 a year outfits is the ability to mingle with other people similarly selected and to form bonds with them that may benefit you later in life. That that can be true, and it might be not inefficient, Larry. It might be that we we need to have uh, you know some kind of matching service because the associations between people are productive in and of themselves. They have to be able to find each other somehow. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's lots of reasons people go to these elite schools that have nothing to do with real education. And also, there's the evidence is that if you go to an elite school, that uh, Harvard collects hardworking kids and uh, uh, kids that are talented. It doesn't really make them hardworking or make them talented. And there's been studies by economists that show that the value added of going to Harvard versus Wake Forest, conditional on on kids, uh, you know, performance in high school, uh, there's no value, not, no, no clear value added. It's just the connections, and the connections are only going to last you so long. You know, you're going to wear your Harvard, as I describe in the book. You can take your Harvard uh, sweater; it says Harvard all over it. And, you know, I went to Harvard. You taught Harvard. You went to MIT. 
So uh, nothing against Harvard per se. Okay, but you can wear your Harvard sweater maybe to your first job or two, but then you'll become a laughing stock if you're wearing this in the summer, the Harvard sweater, and it's not going to take you through your career. Well, we know I know lots of kids who went to Harvard and didn't end up great successes. I know kids in my grad school didn't great get through grad school. Let, let me let me ask you a different kind of question. So we're both professors they, of economics. They didn't know how to work. They didn't know how they didn't have this the ability, the discipline to work. That's that's the real thing that matters in life in terms of making a success of yourself is is oh, hard work. I didn't want I, to step on your punchline. The punchline here is that hard work and character are what's important, not pedigree and and yeah. el- elite stamp on the forehead. I'm one of the ones who got into Brown. They, they're 32,000 applicants for 1,600 slots. You know, you've got a one in 20 chance of getting in. I got in. He, he says, that's not what matters. What matters is uh, whether or not you have grit, whether or not you know how to deal with uh, adversity, uh, whether or not you can apply yourself consistently over time to develop skills and to produce value. And uh, that's not well proxied by uh, the pedigree. Uh, do I get you right, Larry? Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I was going to say we are both teaching graduate students in economics programs, PhD programs. My impression is that uh, you take the top 20, top 25 schools. Let me include Brown and BU in the top 25 graduate programs in America. I think I can do that without too much risk. Yeah. Does it matter whether you're in the top five or the, or the uh, 20 to 25 in terms of the value of your degree? Not just in the marketplace, but also the objective uh, signal about quality that, that that degree confers. Here I've got somebody coming out near the top of their class from MIT or or Stanford or Brown here, I've got somebody coming out near the top of their class from the University of Vermont. Do I care? Uh, I'm trying to apply your maxim now to a different uh, venue, not four-year undergraduate colleges, but uh, the training of professionals to, in this case, uh, do research in economics. You know, I think there might be some signaling uh, that this person got through had to compete against uh, other people that he was more assiduous, more creative uh, at, at different levels through high school, that got into better college, did better in college, did well in, in grad school. Uh, and so, yeah, there are people that have, you know, that ability to be creative and, and diligent, but whether that person became more creative because he had these particular professors at, at, uh, at the University of Chicago versus what he would have had at uh, uh, Michigan State University, I, I don't believe it. I think people's creativity is somehow, we don't know, God-given, if you like, uh, and and their discipline is probably based on what they, you know, experience through life, their parent, their parental influence. I don't know. What do you think? I, I don't have an answer for this. No, I think it's a difficult problem. I think measuring. I'm trying to, I was just going on to talk about citation indices and how you measure the productivity and the influence of a scholar and who's a good economist and who's not. And I wouldn't just say someone has tenure at Harvard, they must be better than someone who has tenure at the University of Illinois because Harvard is a more distinguished department. On the other hand, if I went and saw that who, I don't know, Andre Schleifer had uh, 200,000 citations over a 25-year career and another person had 2,500 citations over 
the same period, or if I saw that uh, the articles that were published were in the highly, most highly sought after journals in the profession, Econometrica, American Economic Review, et cetera, whereas the other person's articles were published in less prestigious journals, measuring the prestige of a journal, again, in terms of reference to how influential are the articles published there, et cetera. I, you know, I don't want to take the nihilistic position that there's no way of making discriminations amongst these people, but I grant that any mechanism used to make those discriminations is likely to be subject to criticism, is going to have a subjective element to it um, or whatever. But I, I would be against the position that let's scrap meritocracy because, that you know, it's all a shell game and, and pretty much everybody is, you know, is, is uh, operating on the same plane. I, I, I think there are gradations that can be discerned. So, for example, I know when I'm sitting in a seminar and somebody is giving a lecture, that I'm listening to somebody who's really, really sharp based on the way they respond to questions, based on the seeming uh, you know, quality of their mind, the depth of the subtlety of their insight, the quickness with which they're able to grapple with complex matters, the clarity of their vision, the, the uh, erudition that they bring to the enterprise because they're aware of all these literatures and they can combine it. I know when I'm, I know when I'm in the presence of greatness. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's not evenly distributed across the world or across the institutions or whatever, you know. A lot of that greatness came from hard work. A lot of it came from luck. A lot of it came from just, you know, luck of genes or what, I mean, luck of, I don't know what it was that, you know, just some, I mean, Albert Einstein went to, I think, the University of Basel. Well, I think he thought his professors were idiots. He did basically all his work on his own. Now, Clearly, he was a genius uh, and transformed the world in a zillion ways. Uh, uh, we've got nuclear energy because of him. Uh, so, but did he need to borrow uh, so much money that he couldn't become a physicist? <laughs> that would have been a terrible thing, <laughs> you know. If he, if he, okay. So let's let's move out of the realm of uh, of the esoteric uh, academic stuff. What do you think about uh, the? Um, uh, forgiving of student loans, legislation that would have the federal government, because you were very critical of the student loan program, saddling students even into their 80s and 90s with debt that's a bad yeah. deal. Uh, yeah. What do you think about the proposal to retire those debts at the general taxpayer's expense through a massive program of uh, the forgiving of student loans, which is very popular on the left? Bernie Sanders likes that. Yeah, okay. Uh, I will, I'll answer that. The uh... Let me just say, Robert Robert Rubin, Bob Rubin was the yeah, uh, that's the guy, Bob Rubin, indeed. And, uh, yeah. So just to be clear, um, the uh, uh, I think this the government should lend money to uh, students at the same rate that it's uh, borrowing money long term. So the long term uh, Treasury bond rate is around two percentage points right now. So excuse me, you're not answering the question, but uh, I'm I'm asking. There's a specific proposal. No, I would not forgive loans because there's too much. That would lead to too much inequality. But somebody just paid off their loan. Somebody has been maintaining their loan. It would just be crazy, unequal uh, treatment. But I think going forward, we should let people borrow at the government bar uh, borrowing rate, long-term borrowing rate. We should let people default who go bankrupt on the loan just be treated like any other loan that you take out in bankruptcy. We should let people refinance their existing student loans at the government uh, long-term bond rate. This is what I propose. 
Now, why you might say, okay, the default rate on student loans is going to be uh, higher than on other uh, loans. Why should the government let uh, let people borrow at the, at this rate where they know there's going to be default? Well, so the government will probably lose money on this thing, but it's going to educate the it's going to help educate the population. So we're going to make the entire population more productive, and therefore we're going to get more output and more tax revenue. So it's going to pay for itself. You know, it's it's why do we have public schools? It's because it's a public good, and college is really a public good. So we want to help people get college educated, get a higher education, not just college. They could, they could borrow money for trade school for apprentice. Yeah, school, I was about to make that point. For anything that they can, where they can improve themselves for hairdresser school. Any of these things at all that's education-based uh, uh, or trade-based. Uh, let, let's, let's pursue this a little bit because there is some economics here. I mean, why would you want to subsidize loans to uh, people to make human capital investments, that is, investments that would enhance their productivity later in life, like going to college or going to a trade school? Why would you want to even have a loan program? answer is that people, if uh, without the government intervention to promote the access to capital of people who want to make these investments, the private credit market would not adequately serve this need. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I more or less learned this from you about, you know, when you wrote your classic paper about uh, intergenerational uh, uh, inequity, you know, that the, the fact that uh, kids who are born without the ability, the wherewithal to get into college because they don't have the, the the capital market available to borrow to get an education and they have less money that they accumulate they leave less to their kids so this just perpetuates itself through time and you need money you know money helps you also get educated you can you can hire tutors uh, you can get you know go to uh, special camps in the summer where you learn things math camps so Larry is making reference, everybody, in case you're interested, to my PhD dissertation in 1976 and to the classic article from that dissertation that was published in Econometrica in 1981. The main point of which is the following I can say very quickly. If investments in the earnings potential of young people is constrained by their parents' income, rich kids and poor kids are not on an even playing field. The poor kids' parents don't have enough money to underwrite the cost of increasing their productivity by sending them to college or whatever. The rich kids' parents do. Now, if you assume rich and poor kids are pretty much a random draw on the distribution of ability that's not the rich kids are not smarter than the poor kids, then you really like for the rich kids' parents to be able to invest a little bit in the poor kids' education. But we don't have a, a good way of doing that. Financial intermediation in that regard doesn't work because of various kinds of moral hazard uh, and adverse selection problems that we could go into. Therefore, the government could step in. Although because of the default rate, this was the thing that got me to thinking about this, the default rate on uh, student loans is higher. Why should that be? Is the investment riskier? We're, they're taking on a loan in order to finance acquiring a college education, and then they'll be able to pay off the loan if they earn enough but some of them might not earn enough. Is that the point? They might be unemployed or they might otherwise find hardships that prevent them from being able to realize the potential of that investment. So it's a bad investment and it fails and they default on the loan. And that's a higher rate of happening for student loans than it is for other kind of loans. How can you, how can you account for that? Well, I think we just look at some of your other writings about uh, uh, 
you know, discrimination in the market and, and how this becomes ingrained and how people's perceptions uh, can lead to an equilibrium where they're not, uh, you know, they're being discounted before they even have a chance to prove themselves. Uh, Do you mean and, minorities or women or? Minorities, uh, yeah, minorities. And uh, so I think if we just put all your work together, uh, <laughs> you have the answer. You know, I was so impressed by that paper you wrote. You know, I don't think I ever met you before I hired you. Uh, do you think I, we met before I hired you? From he loves saying that. He hired me. The Department of Economics at Boston University in 1991 appointed me. Larry was chairman of the department. There was a guy called John Silver who was the president of the university. He probably goes around telling people that, of course, he doesn't because he's dead now. May he rest in peace. Probably used to go around telling people that he hired me. Actually, yep. you don't have a boss in the university, everybody. But yeah, Larry was the chairman, and it was his idea that I come across the river from Harvard. I told, to be... I told Silver to hire you, so I think I'm going to take credit. Okay, okay. he didn't know, know yeah. where it might even be available. I was the one who picked up the phone and called you. We, we put together a letter. I took it to Silver. He said yes. And okay, was... well, I'm very glad that happened because those were 14 very good years at Boston University. But you were yes. saying that my papers were great. <laughs> when I interrupted. <laughs> and I don't think it's due to your professors at MIT. I think, uh, or Edward Northwestern where you went to college, right? I don't think that somehow you have some fantastic talent, you have some discipline, you have something that didn't require you going to those schools. You would have had, you would have excelled no matter what. And thank God you got into academia because you are fantastic as an academic. Thank you. But, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I will tell this much of a story. I was at Northwestern and uh, we were out there in the Midwest and there was something of an inferiority complex and inferiority complex in those years of places like Northwestern and Minnesota and Carnegie Mellon and whatnot, the, the kind of, uh, you know, Midwest relative to the Princeton's and Yale's and Harvard's of the world who were on a, or at least thought themselves on a different plane. And I remember showing up, I was an undergraduate at Northwestern 72 to 76. And then I went back as an assistant professor after, I mean, uh, 70 to 72. And then I went back as an assistant professor in 76 after finishing my degree at, at MIT. And I was all full of MIT bluster and Paul Samuelson stuff and Bob Solo stuff and whatnot. And uh, these guys, these guys were like uh, uh, Leonid Hurwitz. You remember Leonid Hurwitz and yeah. and uh, guys like uh, Groves and Ledyard. These names won't mean anything to anybody now, but they were working on mechanism design and information economics, and, and they were doing really very creative and innovative research, which has subsequently uh, blossomed into a lot of Nobel Prizes and a lot of real profound advances. I mean, people like Paul Milgram and Ben Holmstrom and, uh, uh, you know, were, were assistant professors in those uh, uh, at early in their career uh, at that uh, at that university, and and they've all had spectacularly successful careers. Well, yeah, uh, John Ledger went to Purdue because I remember meeting John Ledger. Yeah, you know, he's an extremely impressive guy. Yeah, brilliant theorist. And you know, so I was I remember him telling me he went to Purdue. I hadn't really known too much about Purdue. I was kind of shocked. Well, why wasn't it one of the top? 10 departments that you went to, how could you be this good having not gone to one of the top 10 departments? It just struck me as bizarre. And then it dawned on me, this was John Ledger. It wasn't MIT or Harvard, 
or Stanford, wherever he went, he was going to be John Ledger in terms of his. It it, it, it wasn't made. It was somehow born. You know, he made it himself. He was self. He was a self-made. I think we're all self-made people on some level. We can't rely, and uh, that's why we have to. We lost Larry there for a minute, uh, for technical reasons. He's back. Uh, and we've come back just so as to sign off of this uh, very uh, exciting discussion with Lawrence Kotlikoff about his book. My room has become very dark. Hold on just a minute. We're signing off, but I just have to take a moment. We've been talking about Larry's book, Money Magic, in which he takes all this great wisdom uh, from a 40-year career uh, as a research economist in finance, and he applies it to the problem of uh, managing our personal finances with great uh, insight and creativity. So everybody should buy his book. Uh, Larry's my friend. I'm glad to be able to talk with him. Uh, but we're going to call the conversation to a close. Uh, not having dealt with the issue of inflation, Larry, maybe we should make that a, uh, something that we talk about the next time we talk. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a very interesting topic, for sure. Yeah. But thanks a lot to Larry Kotlikoff for coming on the show. My pleasure, Glenn. We'll, we'll uh, do it a zillion times more. <laughs>